Welcome to All Along the Wasatch, a public affairs program produced by Bonneville Salt Lake City. If you would like to submit a request to be on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. Now, here's the host of All Along the Wasatch, Mike Parsons. My guest today is Chris Yaden. He is Managing Director for Sapria, and the website is sapria, S-A-P-R-E-A dot org. Thanks for being here. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. We are both Orem High graduates, so we're already starting off with some common ground here. Right, right. Go Tigers. <laughs> exactly. So what's your background, and how did you end up uh, coming to Sapria? You know, most of my career has been in small startups, and that's the most relevant uh, piece of my background that took me to Sapria. But most of it was in tech. It has nothing to do with nonprofit work and certainly nothing to do with sexual abuse specifically. Mm-hmm. But I had those skills to start up and had a close relationship with some of the founding board members, and they wanted uh, an, an approach to starting a nonprofit much like you would a small startup business. They reached out. The issue resonated with me as I have loved ones who have been impacted by sexual abuse. It was an easy yes for me, and that's that's how we got started. And you've been there how long now? Uh, coming up on eight years. Okay. So the name Sapria, what does that mean? Where does it come from? Well, it's actually a proper noun. Uh, when okay. we were when we were working on the brand and trying to figure out what the what the name should be, we were doing some acronym work, and there are some acronyms that were close that got us close to, mm-hmm. to Sapria. But Sapria is not an acronym. Most people oh, think okay. it must be an acronym. That's what I thought. Yeah, but it's actually not. Uh, but but it came out of some acronym work. We what we hope it means in, in the long run to people is. This is the organization that is is at the forefront of fighting child sexual abuse. Uh, who started the organization and, and, and when? So uh, our two founding board members are Derek and Shlaine Maxfield, and I was the first employee. So the three of us uh, were, were the original group that put it together. They as our founders and me as the principal employee. Uh, and uh, that was in 2015 is when we started operating. We were actually incorporated a month before in December 2014. So officially we've just hit our eighth birthday, oh. but coming in January will be eight years when we started operating. And what was kind of the impetus? What was the, I know it's a, it's a married couple that started it. Yeah. What was it in their lives that or made them see that there was this need? So they both had seen loved ones who suffered from child sexual abuse. And what they what they noticed is it wasn't so much the event itself as horrific as the event itself is, but it was the aftermath, mm-hmm. the post traumatic stress that they experienced many years down the road, and they they had that moment that we often have when we see injustices of why is this person suffering because of someone else's choices, and why isn't somebody doing something about it? Mm. And, and that's where it ends for a lot of yeah, people, but they is. took it the next step. They did, and they, they said, well, why don't I do something about yeah. it? And that's that's really the origin story. There's a lot more to it than yeah. that, but when, when you get to the heart of the origin story of what compelled them to take action, it was it was that. And you're located in Lehigh, but you also do work in Georgia, and yeah. that's why the Utah-Georgia? Yeah, so we use a, an east-west model. So we serve oh, okay. the, the entire United States, and we call Utah and Georgia home. So we have a special emphasis on those two states, but our work is really national and international even. Uh, and the east-west model was so that we could be accessible within a day's drive of most people across yeah. the United States. 
We have clients that come from all 50 states and even international locations, so accessibility matters. It's easy to get to and from Georgia, from from Salt Lake, especially with the Delta connection. Oh yeah. Uh, so there was there were other things, but those are some of the some of the reasons. That makes sense. I was kind of picturing it as your services are available in Utah and Georgia, but that's not really the case. They're available everywhere. You just have two locations. Yeah, a lot of our services are digital uh, and in multiple languages. Uh, so they're they're consumed all over the world. Uh, our in-person services are based out of Utah and Georgia, but but people travel to consume them uh, uh, from from all over the country and and from even international spots. So the statistic: one in five children in the U.S. is sexually abused before the age of eighteen. Um, I think that number means that there's a lot of people that have not talked about it or that we don't know about. Before you talk about that. How do you define sexual abuse in that statistic? If one in five children have been sexually abused, what does that mean? Yeah, so sexual abuse means different things to different people, and they define it differently. Uh, the way we define it at Sapria is we're looking at child on child sexual abuse. So think a 14 year old abusing a seven, eight, mm. nine year old, teen on teen sexual assault. So things that go on in our high schools, adults uh, assaulting uh, uh, or abusing children. And when we define it, we include uh, both touch, which people automatically think about. The, right. yeah, yeah, it includes touch, but it also includes things like voyeurism. It, it, it can be purposely exposing them to sexually explicit materials. Uh, child porn mm-hmm. plays a role in that. So it doesn't always have to include a touch to be considered abusive. I think most people, when you think of sexual abuse of kids, you think uh, an adult and a child and the touching part of it, but there is certainly a lot more than that. Yeah, in fact, uh, about half of child sexual abuse is a minor on a minor. Uh, and that's a very different thing than a pedophile abusing a child. Right? Uh, they're, they're both horrific, but the reasons they happen, the way we approach them, how we treat them, how we deal with those that abuse is very different when you're talking about a minor on a minor. One of the other, I'll ask you about other myths in a minute, but one of the myths I think that we often think of is, that it's most likely a stranger, and that's not the case. Yeah, so you'll see studies that vary between 80 and 90% of child sexual abuse is perpetrated by someone the survivor knows. It's someone within that circle of trust. doesn't have to be a family member, but often is family members. But think things like coaches, uh, trusted uh, community leaders like teachers mm-hmm. or ecclesiastical leaders. It's someone within that circle of trust that the family is allowed into that circle that is most likely going to be the accuser. So do we have any idea, if one in five kids are, are abused sexually before 18, what percentage of those do we never know about? Uh, that's really hard to know. Right. Um, so the one in five tries to capture those that don't disclose. Those that actually report to authorities is a very, very small percentage. Um, but those that self-report that may not report to authorities, uh, we approximate that group with the one in five stat. Um, but even let me just share a, a little bit of a conflicting stat to kind of give you a sense. Uh, the CDC measures every two years uh, what's going on with our high school age kids. And they ask a lot of different questions. They ask a couple of sexual violence questions. One of them is about sexual assault. And in the state of Utah, our teens currently, our girls specifically, report 21.2 point, 21.2% of them report having been sexually assaulted just in the last 12 months, months alone. Wow. 
So you think about that and yeah. you think, wow, that's just sexual assault in the last 12 months alone. And 21% is one in five yeah. by itself. So we don't really know the number. What we know is whether it was one in 10, one in three, one in seven, it, not that it's completely irre- irrelevant, but it's almost irrelevant. It is way too much. Yeah. It, the, and the, it is horrific. The fact that it's happening is too much. Exactly. So what are some other common myths that surround child sexual abuse? We talked about knowing the person and, and the age. Yeah. What else is out a, there? A big one is is not in my neighborhood. In fact, we face this a lot here in the state of Utah. Uh, the The perception that sexual abuse happens, but... My neighborhood, it's either about the same as everywhere else or not as bad as everyone else. When we do uh, research on people's perceptions, that's one of the most pervasive perceptions. Mm. It's like, I live in an affluent neighborhood. It's not happening here. We have a tight-knit community. It actually is happening there, and it's happening there just as frequently Mm. as anybody else. So the perception that it's it's bad, but it's happening somewhere else is one of the biggest myths Mm. that have to be busted because people will not intervene unless they feel like their children are at risk. Right, right. Um, are there any statistics that show that there's any one population that's that's a higher risk? I mean, of course, children, but I mean, yeah. uh, demographically, is there is there rich people are more likely or less likely? Generally speaking, the answer is no. It, this is one social issue that really doesn't discriminate. Um, poor, rich different races, ethnicities, religious, non-religious, the rates are, are pretty close to the same. There's a few subpopulations where the buck that trend. Uh, for example, one here in the state of Utah is our Native American population mm-hmm. tends to have higher higher rates than, than other demographics see. But generally speaking, uh, it, 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 it crosses all demographics, all socioeconomic demographics, racial, ethnicity, religious, non-religious. This can be one of those things, I think, that you could overreact, but you could also underreact, too. If, if you're a parent with small children, what, what should you be aware of without being paranoid about yeah. it? I love that you use that word because it's not about being paranoid. In fact, paranoia might actually make it worse. Mm. Uh, so uh, what you're trying to do as a parent or caregiver, first and foremost, is become aware of the issue and the fact that your child is at risk. The great thing about parents is once they feel like their their child's at risk, you don't have to motivate them. Yeah. Parents will move heaven and earth <clears throat> to sure. protect their kids. So um, once that parent feels like, okay, this is a risk for my child, not only that, that they could be abused, but they could abuse someone else, then they will seek education. So that's kind of the next step is parents need to educate themselves on what causes more risk? What reduces risk? And this is where our services really come into play. And all our services are free on, on our website. You mentioned it earlier, sapria.org, uh, where they can learn about what are the risk factors? How can I intervene as a parent? How can I build capability in my child for them to reduce risk? What do I What do I do if I need to intervene in a circumstance? Each of those scenarios, we outline through our resources ways that parents can can engage in behaviors that will reduce the risk that their children will be abused or will abuse others. We're talking to Chris Yaden, who's manager manager director at Sapria, and it's sapria.org, S-A-P-R-E-A dot org. So if you're a parent and you think something might be going on, of course you don't want to overreact, uh, which I think most parents would do. I yeah. feel like I'd be guilty of that too. What's the best way to then 
you mentioned some some of it getting help, but as far as law enforcement or what what's the first step? Yeah, so the first thing you got to do is you got to put your emotions in check. And this is kind of the point you're saying it is hard, but we're adults and we've got to be able to do the hard things. And the reason why is you can actually make the trauma worse for your child if something's happened or even re-traumatize them by how you respond. So you got to take that deep breath and pause. Then you do need to engage professionals. We always recommend Department of Children and Family Services and law enforcement as your, your first points of contact if you believe your child has been abused. They're professionals. They're highly trained. We have excellent resources here in Utah through our Children's Justice Centers that really minimize the impact on the children to and still allow for the appropriate investigation to occur uh, to find out if something something was amiss, something went wrong. I would think with your kids it's kind of like anything that might shock you. You need to take that deep breath and, first of all, say thank you for telling me. Yep. I'm really glad that you trust me with this information. Be calm about it, which yep. I haven't been in that situation. I hope that's how I would react, yeah. but, but boy, that's tough. Um, what do you do with that child after everything is exposed and the authorities have been uh, contacted? You know what? I'm sure therapy and, and a lot of your services do that, but as a parent, kind of what's your general attitude at that yeah, point? Yeah, so there's some good news here. Um, what we're what's really problematic when it comes to child sexual abuse is unaddressed, untreated trauma, not trauma. Um, we don't want trauma to happen to any of our kids, but the real risk is trauma happening and then letting it go untreated. Mm. If we will, if we will intervene as parents and get our children help, there's a very high likelihood they will lead very healthy and happy lives. At Sapria, we're actually a little further down the road. We help those individuals who didn't get the treatment right. and now are adults struggling with the post-traumatic stress because that's the result of not treating it, of sweeping it under the rug, of burying it in the family, burying it in the community. So we strongly encourage parents not only to work with CJCs but to work with professionals, particularly therapists, and there are probably going to be multiple points in their growing up years that you need to re-engage. Mm-hmm. For example, if it happened at age nine and you did some initial therapy, you might need to readdress that therapy at puberty right? or yeah. before they go off to college. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, but really engaging in that professional therapy is, is crucial. I feel like part of our culture here in Utah, and I grew up here, is kind of, and this was in my family, was the case too, that if, if there's something bad, we just push it down and hope it goes away. Yeah. And it's, that's not going to work. Yeah. You know, in, in my opinion, a big part of that is based in fear and lack of education. I found just the opposite with our communities when, when they're willing to face that fear and they're willing to get educated. Our Our communities are very proactive. That's encouraging. And so... The key is we need to get our, our communities educated. So a lot of families bury it because they're making a trade-off decision. It's like, do I? this happened by the uncle or grandpa. Do I disrupt the family and tear my family apart or do I help my child? Well, if I believe that my child's going to be mostly okay, bad things happen to all of us, it's just part of life, Then, and I look at that trade-off, I'm probably going to protect the family. But if I realize that if I, if I don't help this child, they're going to deal with post-traumatic stress. And their likelihood of committing suicide or having uh, a substance abuse disorder or eating disorder goes through the roof. Mm. 
if I have that education, yeah. then that trade off's really easy. I'm protecting my yeah. I'm protecting my child. I I'm I, it's hard that I'm going to disrupt the family, but I'm I'm not going to bury this. My I don't want my child to to be a suicide statistic. Yeah. If you look at it that way, right? it's really not even a choice. It's not even a choice. But but the key is if parents are ignorant, they don't they don't know how to make that choice. Yeah. So that's why that education is so critical. So let's get into what Supriya does. And uh, it, it, looking at your website and reading through materials, it seems like uh, your bigger focus, if there is one, is helping those people that have suppressed it and are now dealing with it as an adult. But you also deal with prevention. Let's talk about the, the healing part. Sure. Um, and probably the biggest thing that I think you're known for is the retreats that you do. So yeah. maybe talk a little bit about the retreats, who goes on those, what what happens when they're there. Sure. So uh, the first thing to understand is kind of in the continuum of care, when, when a survivor goes through something traumatic, uh, what, what help do they need? We help in the stabilization stage and in the long-term recovery. We don't help in the crisis stage. So someone that was just raped, for example, our services are not for them. Or someone that just uh, attempted a suicide, they need to go through some other type of treatment before our, our, our services are there for them. If they're ready to stabilize and work on their long-term post-traumatic stress symptoms, that's where we come in. And the retreat's a perfect example of that. So we do a four-day in-person psychoeducation retreat followed by nine weeks of asynchronous online courses. Mm-hmm. And that is 100% focused on helping that survivor learn how to manage their healing. And the results are awesome. We've had, uh, we've had it researched since 2018 by university researchers from both the University of Michigan and Brigham Young University. And on average, the women that go through that experience after 12 months, uh, uh, they realize a 37% reduction in post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. symptoms and a 45% increase in what we refer to as well-being indicators, which are indicators of their ability to cope or manage that trauma when it occurs. So it fundamentally changes their their day-to-day experience. And there's also no cost for that. That's correct. Due to generosity of amazing donors, uh, we're able to offer it at no cost. I would imagine there's a bit of a waiting list for something like that. Yeah, it varies. Historically, there's been a very large waiting list. During COVID, that rating, waiting list shrunk to uh, zero. Uh, you know, as, as, as COVID disrupted a lot of things. So that, that list is building back up, but it's actually a great time for people to engage in their healing. Uh, they're, they're li- especially people that live here in Utah or in, in Georgia. Uh, they're likely to get in pretty quickly, much more so than they have historically. So if somebody is hearing this and thinking, my goodness, I would love that for myself. How do they go about it? I mean, they go to the website. Yeah, they go to the website, supriya.org, and and they're they're going to just fill out a very simple form that requests an application. And we, the application process is not so much we're going to choose this person and not that person. It's to make sure it's appropriate for their stage of healing. Back to the example I shared earlier, if someone had just attempted a suicide, we might say, hey, you need to do some other work before Mm -hmm. this this service is going to be right for your healing. So. That application process just helps us through that, and uh, we make it as smooth and easy as possible. The issue with the application, though, more than anything, is is the survivor's voice, and survivors that are listening to this will get it. There's going to be that voice in their head, that shame voice th- that says, somebody else needs it more than me. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I deserve this. Um, I, I'm not sure I deserve to heal. And that voice is very loud mm. in their heads as part of their post-traumatic stress. 
And my encouragement to you is we're here to help you work through that voice hmm. and take advantage of the healing that was designed for you. Yeah, I, I, I think of the women in my life that are from Utah, and that's a common theme um, that somebody else deserves it more than I do. Yep. It's crucial. I also think it's really important as a nonprofit for you to know exactly who you serve. There are nonprofits that try to do it all, and yep. very few of those are very successful. So I commend you on having a very focus Thank you. and knowing knowing your lane. That's yeah. that's a big Thank deal. You. So uh, you offer some webinars and uh, online resources. Uh, those are available to anybody anywhere. Yeah, they're they're free. So the healing webinar is a four and a half hour session. It's great for the persons that's like, I'm not sure if I want to jump all the way in and do an in person retreat experience. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. But they they want to try and engage in here. It's perfect for that person. It's perfect for the person that can't travel uh, to our location in Utah or Georgia. It's perfect for the person that has gone through a lot of healing and just wants to brush up on mm. on 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 their skills on how they manage through their healing. So there's that. The online resources can be consumed from the convenience of home. These are the resources you can do from 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 home on your couch in your jammies. Yeah. And also great for people that are a little hesitant to engage. It's like, am I ready for this? Online resources are a great place to start, and they're all free as well. And then you also offer support groups. Are those in-person? We we do. So there's both in-person and virtual. And Mm -hmm. these are interesting because we don't run them. They are run by survivors for survivors. We provide all the materials and content and professional videos and things to help them engage but what we know in mental health generally and for survivors of child abuse specifically is that community matters to healing. We're learning that more and more in the mental health field. Community matters. And so these are support groups run by survivors for survivors. And you come together, you learn together, uh, you support one another, share not not the horror stories, but share uh, good, helpful skills. Uh, tools and skills from survivor to survivor about how to engage in healing and and they can be consumed both in person and virtually and then on the prevention side uh, I know you offer a lot of uh, the same online resources but you also do some community education and some classes um, how does somebody go about requesting one of those yeah so w- there there's two things going on here first of all who are we going after we're, we're going after the parent or primary caregiver, whoever that primary caregiver is for the child. So the online resources, they consume right on the web. The community education, they can request a community class uh, on the web as well. But I, I don't want to. I don't want to overstate this because the community education is designed that pretty much anybody can deliver it. We provide again all the professional content through video formats to where somebody could spend a couple hours and and successfully facilitate a class for their community. So we designed it that way on purpose. So if there was a church leader that wanted to address this to their congregants, they could they could address it. If there was a school nurse, if there was a PTA group that wanted to do it, if there was a employee resource group in a business around parenting that wanted to do it, mm. it's designed to be consumed that way. So you can just go pick it up right off the website or you can request what we call our volunteer community educators. These are people that have been trained to facilitate. You can request one of those educators to come come facilitate. For and you. you're looking for people to volunteer for yep. that position yeah, as well. Yeah, we are always doing training and training more volunteers if people want to do that. 
So how can people help? Let's talk about the different ways. Of course, with any nonprofit, donating money is the absolute best way to help because that can be turned into anything you need. Um, and I saw on your website there's several ways to do that. Uh, in-kind donations, what sort of things are you looking for? Yeah, also on the website there are several in-kind opportunities. So at those retreats we talked about, there's quite a few different uh, things that we need in terms of supplies in order to support those retreats. Uh, one of them, for example, is, is is blankets. We give each survivor a blanket when they come. Mm. So uh, there are certain blankets that we give, and you can find the instructions for preparing and 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 sending those blankets right on the website. Another thing is we do uh, an activity based on a Japanese philosophy called kintsugi, which requires a little ceramic bowl. You could donate, mm. you collect and donate bowls. Uh, there's other just day to day, you know, products, toothpaste, toothbrushes, yeah. things like that 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 we we have on hand in case people don't bring them. So there's all sorts of in-kind donations you can find there on the website. And I love, not a lot of nonprofits do this. I think more should. You have a, a wish list of things you particularly need rather than just give us anything. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's always specific needs that some are bigger than others at, at a given time, and we communicate that on our website. And you can reach out. Here's the cool thing. You can reach out to our, our volunteer coordinating team. and 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 if you have a specific skill – we want to know about it because we may be able to apply it. So we even have professionals that volunteer their time to do X, Y, or Z. And you can reach out uh, through the links that are there to, to offer those services, and we'll put them to work if we can we can make it meaningful for you and us. And this seems like it would lend itself well to youth fundraisers or Eagle Projects. Definitely. Clubs that want to do something. No good. doubt about it. Um, I know that hold a fundraiser is something you have available on your website too, and that kind of feels like maybe it's like everything else you've talked about. Here are all the pieces you need. Now just yep. go do it. Yeah, it's so critical to have um, the masses support a nonprofit. So we get funding from lots of different sources, and sometimes people think, "Well, I, I can't give you ten thousand dollars." So most people can. Yeah, yeah. What do I do? But. What you have to understand is when you get a lot of people giving $5 a month, giving up their coffee or their Diet Coke for a day, whatever it is, right, um, that adds up, and it's extremely powerful in moving the work forward. It's very reliable revenue for us. So that monthly donor is probably one of the biggest things I, I would recommend people to consider. And if it's only a dollar a month, dollar a month. <laughs> if it's $10 a month, $10, if it's 50 if it's 100 whatever you can do. It matters, and it helps us move the needle. And, and they do add up. Chris Yaden is Managing Director at Sapria and the website, sapria.org. Anything we missed that you want to make sure people know about Sapria? You know, when, when I, I get asked that question sometimes when I, I do shows like this, and I always like to send just a very clear message to survivors when I get asked that question. The, the message is very simple. Hope and healing are possible. We've had 4,500 women come through that retreat mm. program. We've had... Tens of thousands use our other services. Hope and healing is possible. Others are doing it, and so can you. And you deserve it. And you deserve it. And and the second part of that message is, I know sometimes you feel like you're broken. You're not. You are a capable human being who had a horrific thing happen to you. And with just a few tools, you can take back hold of your life and take control of your healing journey, and we're here to help. And lastly, we believe you. Mm. There are people that care. And we're here to work shoulder to shoulder with you to find find some peace. 
Thank you for listening to All Along the Wasatch with Mike Parsons. If you would like to submit a request to be a guest on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. That's mparsons at ksl.com. 